Good morning. This morning it's my privilege, and I'm grateful to your pastor for the kindness that he's extended to allow me to bring God's word to you this morning. Uh, I want to draw your attention to two verses that you find in the passage of scripture that was read to us by Simon a few moments ago. Verse 58 and verse 50, bigger pardon, verse 56 and 58. Here Jesus, in the midst of a vigorous and cruel attack from the religious and secular authorities of his time. Jesus is wanting to refute them, respond to them, but at the same time, he's wanting to encourage his disciples. He's wanting to reassure his disciples. He's wanting to encourage them in the midst of this dispute. He's wanting to reassure them. So look with me at these two verses. Here comes the first of these assertions that Jesus makes. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Do you feel encouraged? I believe the disciples did. And if we had the time, we could see how the flow of John's gospel explains the context and helps us understand that the disciples were somewhat afraid and somewhat confused. If we were turned back to chapter 6, we'd hear Jesus asking the disciples, are you going to stay with me? Because many were abandoning him. And Peter says on behalf of the disciples, you have the words of life. Where else can we go? We've come to know that you are the Christ, the Messiah. But in the midst of that affirmation, his status as son of God and his status as Messiah or Christ is being directly and vigorously challenged by the secular and religious leaders of the time. He's under attack. And yet he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. And a second verse I want to look at with you today is 58. There Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then in this verse, Jesus is standing on who he really is and reassuring them that as he speaks with them, he speaks with divine authority. So let's spend a moment or two looking at these two verses. Let's go back to the first of them, verse 56. Encouragement in a time of crisis. This last week, we have seen great tragedies across the world. Yes, France is very much in our mind. The situation in Turkey is very much in our mind. And our hearts grieve over those situations. But a week last Thursday, in the middle of the night, I received a text message from one of my parishioners. I am a pastor and a teacher. I am a pastor of a Presbyterian church in Houston, Texas. I'm a teacher at our theological college, the Reformed Theological Seminary in Houston. And I received a text message. The message woke me at 1.30 a.m. I'm terrified, Pastor. I have family in downtown Dallas. I texted this person back and found myself in the middle of a conversation. And then in the midst of that, I received a phone, another text message, this time from the wife of a police officer in my congregation. My husband is out supervising 
a Black Lives Matter march. Actually, he was doing it early in the morning. It hadn't started yet, but her husband had been dispatched to be part of that supervising group. You may not be aware that in Dallas, Texas, a little over a week and a half ago, a sniper began sniping at a peaceful protest and uh, killed five police officers intentionally and deliberately. People were terrified. What does one say to give assurance? Well, we give assurance with a great truth of who God is, that he's a great covenant God who's loved his people from all eternity and who cares for us individually. And the most remarkable thing about that love and care is that he sent his son into this world to die for us. And to die for us that the really significant issue of life in this world is addressed. And that, in fact, is what's going on in our text. If we look back to the beginning of chapter 8, we discover that the religious leaders were now ready to try and trap Jesus so that they could cause him to be lowered in the esteem and respect of the people who were listening to him teaching in the temple. They brought to him a theological and legal question. They found some poor woman who had committed adultery, they asserted. They even asserted that she'd been caught in the very act. And brought her to Jesus and said, what do we do? They, of course, knew because they were the experts in the law. They were famous for it. They knew they required to have two witnesses. And those two witnesses had to bear to the truth of that. There was a definite legal procedure that had to be followed. And they knew there was. Now, their purpose was to underscore the importance of the law as addressing the problem of life. If we could just get the law right and get people into the right law relationship with them on another and God, everything would be right. And when Jesus listens to this challenge, he says nothing. Eventually... He begins writing in the sand. And one by one, they wander away, leaving that woman alone before Jesus. His famous introductory words were, He who is without sin cast the first stone. And to the woman, he said, Where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? And she said, There are none here. And then Jesus, rightly in accordance with the law, could say, then that's the end of the matter. There are no accusers. But Jesus doesn't let her off there. He moves her from the legal situation to the heart situation. Go and sin no more. When Jesus is being challenged throughout this chapter, His credibility challenged. As Simon read those opening verses of our passage of scripture, verse 48. You're a Samaritan, they said to him. You have a demon, they said to him. They've reached the point in their debate with Jesus that all they can do is throw 
accusations of hate against him. And Jesus responds to them and says, in verse 56, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And in this one phrase, he sets before us the picture of Abraham. He sets before his disciples the picture of Abraham. The man to whom God made his covenant promises back in the book of Genesis. That through Abraham and his faith, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And in the context in which God sets up his relationship with Abraham, particularly in Genesis chapter 18, it's in the context of God speaking to the need for there to be first and foremost a reconciliation between God and man. You see, Jesus is not falling into the trap of saying the real solution to life's problems are social, economical, economic and political. Jesus recognized the importance of the social and the economic and the political. I mean, it is Jesus who healed the brokenhearted. It is Jesus who fed the thousands. It is Jesus who healed the sick. As we go on in John's Gospels, we Jesus who enables the blind to see. Jesus understood the real world problems we have. But he wasn't going to be drawn into this trap of saying the solution is political, social, economic. The real issue is the heart of man. And Abraham is oft described as that father of faith, the one who trusted God for his grace to work in life. And trusted that somehow, in God's infinite wisdom and grace, God would deal with the heart problem of man. And as Jesus speaks and says, Abraham looked forward to my day and rejoiced and was excited in it, there's a sense in which, perhaps through a fog and uncertainty, as Abraham was in God's presence, particularly in chapter 18 of Genesis, when he has that experience with the three heavenly visitors and their great cutting of the covenant takes place and the burning offerings accepted and his wife is told that she's going to have a child and at her age all she could do was laugh she was about my mother's age and to tell my mother she's about to have a child she's looking at me going yes I'd laugh too He could see in part that God would provide the way. He didn't understand it. But he could see and trust that God had a plan to deal with the heart problem of humanity. Beloved, the heart is a really significant issue. I invite you to come with me on a little journey. It's very private. Only you can take it with me. And you'll take it alone with me because I'll take mine alone with you. Look inside your heart. Do you really feel happy to say to the world, 
I rejoice in my humanity. I rejoice in my goodness. When you look inside your heart and the word of God has prompted you, there's only one conclusion that you and I can come to. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. None is perfect. Not a single one. And that's the real problem of society. It's not wrong to address address the other issues of social justice. Indeed, it's essential. But it's not the only essential. Indeed, it's not the essential. Until the heart of man is addressed... Abraham, look forward to the day when the Messiah would address the heart problem. Because once the heart problem is dealt with, everything changes. Jesus goes on before these religious leaders who are attacking him, these secular leaders who are attacking him, trying to drag him into a discussion which said the solution to the problem is the social and the political and the legal. But Jesus goes on and wants to not only encourage his disciples that the message he's standing with for them and the message that he's inviting them to join is the message of the gospel. But he also wants to do something else. It's just as critical. It's one thing to recognize that Jesus died on the cross for our sin and atoned fully so that by faith we take hold of that forgiveness he's given us so that we can stand before him forgiven and declared perfect. It's very significant that we understand that this work of God in our lives has to be divinely empowered. You see... We need to be reassured that the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who sent forth his son into this world to die on the cross for us is the same God who promised the divine power of his Holy Spirit to work among us, to regenerate, to renew, to restore, to empower, to transform us we can transform relationships around us and through transforming relationships around us transform even our culture and so Jesus goes on and says to his disciples and says to those who are attacking him before Abraham existed I was you see he is saying to them I'm not only the promised Messiah who has come to die on the cross to fulfill the great promises to Abraham He says, I am. Now, of course, you probably noticed the response that comes in the end of the chapter that Simon read. They no sooner heard this phrase than they picked up stones and wanted to kill him. Why? Because they understood the significance of the phrase, I am. In the Hebrew mind, they understood that that was, in a sense, a reference to the great divine name of God the name by which God revealed himself to Moses in the Sinai Desert. 
when Moses said, Who are you, God, that I might tell the people you sent me? And he says, I am who I am, Yahweh. And when Jesus says, I am, he's insisting that everything associated with redeeming the heart of man and restoring relationships is first and foremost a work of God. It's a work of grace. And beloved, that's one of the great weaknesses of all the pleas that we're hearing at the moment. In America where I live, we are truly bitterly divided. It's an experience in these last two years to see what's been going on, to hear the different solutions to America's problems. We need to dialogue. We need to talk. We need to have a new relationship. We need to have privilege moved away. We need to have equality. The list goes on and on and on. But every one of those solutions begins with man and looks to the power of man to solve the problem. And that's the great tragedy in the United States today. The more that God and his power and grace is pushed out of the picture, the less and less success there is in our culture. And the less and less effectiveness there is in the church. Before Abraham was, I am, said Jesus. The great work of redemption, the practical work of changing your life and mine, comes as we relate in worship and in prayer and in the reading of scripture that the divine power of God can work profoundly in us. It's a work of God. That's why the Apostle Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved. It's not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Understand that unless it's of God, it's going to fail. And when we think of the incredible ministry that took place after the death of Jesus. The gospel goes out into all the world. It's powerful and effective. And it works. How can it work? Years ago I heard a joke and a story that helped me understand how profound that transition was. The story goes like this. Two angels were in heaven looking down onto the earth. They'd seen Jesus died, they'd seen his life, they saw his resurrection, and then they turned and said, well, what's the next part of Jesus' program? And one of the angels turned to the other and smiled and said, well, I know what the program is. And his friend said, what's the program? He said, well, look down. Do you see those 11 chaps down there? He's going to use them to transform the world. And his friend said, does he have a plan B? Well, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, there better have been a plan B. That's where the Acts of the Apostles, that wonderful book in the New Testament, begins with the work of the Holy Spirit work, working through his people. Before Abraham was, I am. You see, not only does the gospel address the heart of the problem, the gospel calls us to live in the power of the resurrected Christ. And as you and I daily live in the power of the resurrected Christ, we can begin that great process. And beloved, I fear for any country 
that tries to move God further and further out of the picture. Because the more he's moved out of the picture, we are further and further away from the solutions of justice, equality, fairness, and all the other heart dreams that people have. And so Jesus, in the midst of a great controversy, responds to the arguments and the accusations of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders and the secular leaders with two great assertions. Abraham rejoiced to see my day that the heart of the problem would be addressed in the great work of Christ on the cross where we are called to come in faith and repentance and accept the gift of newness of life. And that's a great encouragement. Amidst all these confusions and all these uncertainties, the gospel's the same today as it was 2,000 years ago and it'll be the same as it will be in 2,000 years to come if the Lord chooses not to return yet. But Jesus goes on and reassures us that in the midst of this battle of life, in the power of the risen Christ, the I am, the one who is the second person of the Trinity, the one who spoke in terms of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which he promised to his church, in that we can yet triumph. Hence, it makes perfect sense that the Apostle Paul can say, in Christ we are more than conquerors. Let us pray. Dear Father and God, this morning we come together and confess our own sin, the blackness of our own hearts, our continual struggle with sin. But we also come and rejoice in the mystery, the wonder and the joy of your ongoing forgiveness and the the effectualness of Christ's death on the cross for each one of us who have trusted in that great work. We come to you not only trusting in what you've done, but pleading with you to grant us the power of the Holy Spirit to work daily in our lives that we might overcome ourselves, that we might become more than we could be in our own strength, and that by your grace we can not only transform the life that we live, but we can be transformers of the lives of those around us and begin the exciting process of seeing your grace little by little transform even our culture and society. Or grant that this church in this place will be a place that not only proclaims the gospel in its purity and pristineness, but also proclaims the power of the cross and of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.